This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show functional health coach, author, and chiropractor for the World Surf League, Jason Gilbert. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Jason's early life, his own personal back pain journey, his path into chiropractic, functional medicine, heavy metal poisoning, proactive versus reactive medicine, foundation training, surfing, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Jason Gilbert. Enjoy. Well, Jason, I want to start by saying firstly, thank you to Jesse Salas, who connected us, one of my firefighter brothers and foundation training family members. And secondly, to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. Mate, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to, to chat with you. And also thanks to Jesse as well. What a legend. Jesse and I get on really well because we've got so much in common around health and helping people and that passion, you know, for well-being. So I'm, I'm grateful as well for the invite. Yeah, beautiful. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? This afternoon, I'm on the North Shore of Hawaii, Haleiwa. I'm here. I'm usually based uh, in a place called Lennox Head near Byron Bay on the east coast of Australia. And this is just a great place to be this time of year. I've worked with the World Surfing League for 20 years. A lot of the athletes are here pre-contest. The first contest is at the end of this month, the pipe. Uh, so some of them need help. Some of them have been injured while they're training here and others just are aware of how important maintenance is. So we just do some continual maintenance work. I was about three years ago now, I think maybe a little bit less than that. I interviewed Bethany Hamilton, 
who was my son's hero at the time. He'd read her book and was just blown away. And she said hello to him on the on the what was Zoom back then. Um, is that an athlete that you work with? Because I mean, she, oh my goodness, like overcoming both psychological fear and and physical trauma. Sure. She's absolutely incredible. She's an incredible human being, isn't she? And yeah, the last time I saw Bethany was a long time ago. Uh, I'd worked with her. I'm pretty. Sh- I'm not sure if it was before her incident with a shark, but definitely after. And that was when she was still on tour. And then I remember going for a surf with her in really decent-sized Bells Beach and just being blown away with us jumping off the rocks. At that time, she had like a handle on the front of her board that had helped her duck dive. And I believe after she wasn't using that. So, yeah, I've seen her both as a as an athlete that I was treating, but also surf with her and, and, and just been amazed, absolutely amazed, what we're capable of if we believe that we can overcome obstacles. 100%. Well, speaking of overcoming obstacles, I would love to start at the very beginning of your lifeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings? Sure. I was born in Sydney, Australia. Um, I have one brother, so younger brother. I was first off the first cab off the rank. <laughs> and um, look, I would say probably the most significant thing with my early life was the fact that mum smoked when she was pregnant and I was born asthmatic. And I mention this because there's things in life where certain decisions or pieces of advice can help us and influence follow one path or another path. So I was very lucky that in mum taking me to certain doctors, one recommended that she put me in the pool and get my lungs stronger naturally. Even though I was a baby, just you put any little baby in a pool and it's going to instinctively want to stay afloat. So that will induce like an exercise, I guess, and lung strengthening. So that's what, I guess, directed me towards uh, swimming. Okay, became a competitive swimmer, um, plus eventually surfing and the sea and all things aquatic. However, if it was another doctor that recommended Ventolin and medication, my life I see would have been very different. And mate, I use that as an example. There's so many things in life that we could go, oh, poor me, that happened to me, you know, I'm this and that happened. And But you can also look back and go, without that happening, I wouldn't have learned this and I wouldn't be where I am today. So it goes that far back, my passion around health. And, um, and, and taking advantage of any disease, any symptom, any adversity and turning it to our advantage, even though as a child I wasn't, you know, making conscious decisions around that. A lot of it was luck as well. Um, so that was one really important part. The other one was us uh, owning a health food store when I was younger and I'd work there and I'd be influenced by incredible elderly people still rocking it in this 80s and 90s and I was just always fascinated by what they were doing and back then they weren't getting any complex combo of supplements most of them were coming in for the basics brewer's yeast Swedish bitters aloe vera you know like things like that whole foods so back then also I was I noticed they had this this interest around staying functional and being inspired by those people um, I guess in that mix as well was just, you know, a life of um, rugby, rugby league and lots of activity after school. So sport was important, different to today where that's a challenge for a lot of kids. 
sedentary lifestyle, build up cities, technology and all the rest. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, and also, I guess, having that as a given in life, something that you don't have to think about, you exercise, that is what part of a healthy lifestyle entails. It's something that I talk on talk about a lot, um, and it really is to counter the the judgy side of the fitness industry. You know, like oh my goodness, why don't they just go to the gym and eat salad and be like me with abs? You know, and it's it's so kind of ignorant to have that conversation and not take into account the environment. You know, if you grew up, for like example, I did. You grew up on an English farm where you literally have an orchard and you have vegetables in the garden and you eat your own meat your perception of food and health and time outside and getting dirty and all the things that we know now are very healthy is very different than, you know, a kid that grew up in inner city, New York somewhere that all they had were bodegos and, you know, concrete jungles to play in. So, you know, this, this normalizing, what I would argue was pretty much most of the world a hundred years ago, the Western world, at least, is such a huge part of the conversation, especially as we've just come out of this pandemic where supposedly health was supposed to be important for those couple of years. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I guess when I look back, I'm 54 now, so I look back and I I see a, let's say, a more ignorant or less informed me, less empathetic, not getting that. Because, hey, hang on, this is normal for me. This is my normal. We know that. And not understanding, well, it's not like that. You know, I lived in Sao Paulo on and off for 20 years. Brazil, there's 20 million people in that city. And at the start of my career, there would frustrate me so much to see that exercise wasn't even on a lot of people's radar. Um, it was polluted. They live in buildings, you know, like they often don't have open spaces to play in. And it's only with time that I'm thinking, hang on, I have to modify my advice here. I have to have more empathy in regards to what people's foundation is. If they're born in a city, then my advice to them is not only different, but also the where I start to educate is different as well because my norm is not the same as their norm. You know, So you're right, so right on that front. Um, but I do think it's really important as part of that education is to compare how we live now as opposed to how we would have lived 100 or 200 years ago. And most people get that because most of these cities that have built up, the build up in the last, let's say, 50 years, before that people would have been able to relate to the fact that their grandparents weren't overweight, the grandparents were more active. Where there's buildings now, there was open spaces and a clean river before, you know, things like that, that, you know, living in developing countries is very easy to relate to because they're developing fast a lot of the time. And as you said, mate, the whole thing about the pandemic, wow, that was at the start, you know, I, I naively thought, oh, hang on, you know, like we, well before we knew what was happening. But look, immune system, health, we've got this, you know. Okay, we don't know the severity of what's coming, I admit. However, let's just be the most prepared we can be for it. That's going to make a, a lot more sense than just going in there unprepared and then sadly seeing, at least in Australia, that essential services uh, were liquor shops, you know, li grog, grog shops, as they'd say, and more essential places such as gyms were closed down and eventually people could go back and, and work out in a mask. But there was always that question mark there around, hey, hang on, what do people understand as healthy and how is this going to affect not only their physical health but their mental health and therefore what we're seeing now 
their ability to grasp these concepts we're talking about due to the last three to four years and what they've been through mentally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, through my lens at least, 2023 was the glaring year of the ripple effect of the year two years before and i saw a lot of people struggling continue to struggle but you know and i've underlined this a lot i had so many people just like yourself um during the pandemic i put an extra episode out each week and it was nutritionists and chiropractors and doctors and strength conditioning coaches and you name it to empower the people that were at home you know that have been told to stay in their flat in london or wherever it was and give them some autonomy back but when there's this conversation and all this scaremongering about the health and a disregarding of underlying, um, you know, comorbidities, um, what's disgusting is as we came out, nothing was done. And I, and I've, I've highlighted this, you know, no local farmers were given incentives to grow organic food, you know, PE programs weren't put back in schools, you know, real food wasn't cooked in lunches and removing the soda machines. It was nothing, absolutely nothing. So not only did all those people die, we did nothing to honor their memory. We did nothing to change it so that the next virus that sweeps through our planet doesn't claim as many uh, lives again. Mate, 100%. I, I couldn't put that any better than what you just put that. So um, it's it, what, what's that word? I think it's in Mandarin, the same word as crisis. It also means opportunity. And that was our opportunity, and it was. Some people, a lot of people did benefit, and they turned that into a positive. However, it, it is sad to see that that crisis did not result in opportunity for a lot of others. And as you said, you know, whether it be for another crisis that's coming or a pandemic or just life in general, the lessons that we can learn during crises are so important. And what, what it highlighted is that, and I guess when I do my retreats and one-on-ones, I always start with the fact that, we live in an allopathic society where we are encouraged to wait till we lose our health. So when most people think about their health, when they actually lose it, when a disease or pathological process is occurring and causing obvious symptoms. So that's when we are programmed to believe that, okay, we need to look at our health then. And we live in a world that I, I don't know, put a percentage on it, is it 95%, 92 98 It's a huge percentage of the health profession is actually focused on disease. So this is really, really important that people understand this, that our allopathic professionals are incredibly responsible and dedicated and, and really well-intentioned. That's the most important thing. However, their allopathy is not focused on function. Okay, it's a bit like a house catching fire, of course we're going to call the fire brigade. That's allopathy. We need the fire brigade to come and help us put that house out. However, because that allopathy is englobed in a health profession title, we believe that our health will be looked after as well when that fire is put out. What we don't understand is that it depends on us to look for a carpenter, a plumber, an electrician, all the rest to help rebuild the house. So it's not the fire brigade's fault. Okay, they're not coming along saying any other, anything different other than, hey, we'll put the fire out for you. But we believe that in that system, that will include and help us be guided towards hell. So maybe what I might do actually while I'm talking about this point is say, well, what are most people, what most people have as their definition of health is based on how they feel and somehow they look. 
okay, if they look healthy, if they look fit and how they feel. I ask people, oh, what's health to you? It's when I'm feeling good. So you're like, okay, well, a lot of people woke up this morning feeling great and they're dead this afternoon of a heart attack. Were they healthy? Did that just happen during the day? Or maybe they weren't healthy and they didn't feel that. So straight away, people are having an idea. And my own mum, actually, mum, she's a lucky thing. She's six years on surviving lung cancer from smoking 60 years. Wow. Which late stage lung cancer. Um, And mum was feeling great even the day that she first coughed up blood and we found out she had cancer. You know, so we cannot have that definition of health, okay? It will lead to disease. Um, however, if we do know the true definition of health, which is 100% cell function, and there's a word for that, homeostasis, then that gives us our best way of going, well, hang on, if it's 100% function, what's that in globe? What's that entail? It entails us getting 100% of what we need, what the genetic requirements of our cells are and giving it to them, and a minimum or zero of what it can't have, which we'll, you know, we'll, we'll call toxins. So if we have the ability to put into a column what our nutrients are and increase them if they need to be increased, which is the case for most of us, and recognise what toxins are and not the typical ones that a lot of people think, you know, might be chemicals in our food or cleaning products, which are really important, obviously, but a toxin is a sedentary lifestyle, it's negative thoughts, it's lack of sunlight and more, then we have the best chance at um, steering our health in the direction of true health. So back to the pandemic and, and all of the result and effects, I think that, you know, what, what, do we, what do we see? How do we see people lose function? We saw, you know, mental health, obviously, talked about that due to a series of things, okay? If we you limit people's movement, they're going to suffer mentally, Okay, no animal, if we take a, a happy, healthy dog or s- animal from the wild and we put it, so we want to say a dog on a farm, and we put the dog in a, a small backyard, a city, or a wild animal in a cage, that's not a happier animal. It's not a healthier animal for that reason. So movement, I believe, is one of the most important nutrients for our body and our brain. Um, if we look at, for example, the toxins that they took in, you know, like during that time, the sedentary lifestyle, the posture, all the rest, they're the things we need to look at that did occur during the pandemic and that would need to be looked at now and reversed, hopefully, in preparation for a next one or just a healthier life, you know. While we're on the subject, I'm going to you know, get your perspective on this and obviously then we'll carry on walking through your early life and beyond. But the people listening, a lot of them are shift workers. They might be law enforcement. My profession, we work 24 hours um, at a time in the U.S. fire service. Talk to me through your functional medicine lens about the impact of sleep and, and the impact of sleep deprivation on physical and mental health. Yeah, that is so important. I mean, if we even started back to that health profession we look at the poor doctors when they come out as interns they from day one they're compromising one of the most important nutrients which is sleep by doing extended shifts so yeah there's not a shadow of doubt that sleep and i mentioned movement being the most important nutrient sleep is definitely more important um and what's uh the the why we sleep i've got uh, a mental Matthew walker 
Matthew Walker. I recommend that everybody read that book. Or if not, if they don't want to read a book, at least listen to one of his podcasts. He's incredible. And by understanding the intricacies of sleep and the effects of poor sleep, we have one of the best ways of affecting our, our health. And, mate, um, so with the shift workers, yeah, I empathise. I really do. And I feel, okay, well, if that is a necessity, what do we do? We've got to look at strategies to compensate for that. You know, how do we regulate our circadian rhythm if we're working at night? You know, we've got to be sleeping at day. What do we need to make up for? What hormones are being affected? How do we compensate for that? Especially cortisol, you know, if cortisol through the, it goes through the roof because we wake up with cortisol typically high in the morning and that will be thrown out. So we, we need to look at our individual case, how often we work, shift work. Um, if it's, for example, airline staff and they're not only dealing with a change in um, their, their sleeping hours but also time differences when they get to their destinations, how they deal with that, you know. How do you deal with shift work, let's say, in the fire brigade, if you have uh, a night where you're not active, you know, you're just you're waiting for a potential emergency, what should you eat? You know, like what sort of foods are inflammatory, what aren't, should you eat at all? So there's a whole series of factors that need to be looked at individual by individual and applied to minimise the effect, the ageing effects. I say firstly, your immune system, longevity, ageing, all of these things, they, they do suffer with shift workers for sure. Okay, what sort of exercise? That's another one really important, yeah? Uh, what about red light? If you're sleeping during the daytime, are you getting at least some red light via, you know, various options with technology these days to complement for that? And may you probably have a few of your own tricks, you know, that you do and that you've learned from the people you've interviewed as well. Yeah, I've got, you know, so many. And the one of the most, you know, basal ones that, Matt Walker talks about and some of the other, you know, experts in the sleep world, um, the blue blocking glasses at night, the uh, temperature low. I think mine, I have mine at 66 in the house at night, um, you know, trying to minimize devices, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's not hard and fast, but, you know, you're constantly deliberately trying to create an environment to sleep well. And I'm, I'm not on shift anymore. I transitioned out five years ago now, um, partly because I realized that this job was killing us and, <laughs> you know, when when I was at that crossroads, which I had no intention of being at the time, it was the last place that I worked, made it easier to leave, let's put it that way. Um, you know, it, it was also kind of walking the walk on regaining my health. And just to circle back to your burning building analogy, we have a separate uh, area called fire prevention. Those are the ones that will inspect the fire escapes and the the extinguishers and the outlets and all the things. And through putting all the incredible tools that the fire prevention world has come up with into schools. We haven't had um, a fire that's killed more than I think a person in a school since the 1950s because wow. they've understood the proactive nature of fire prevention. That same theory needs to be applied to us. And, you know, and so giving our responders enough rest and recovery between shifts so they can get as close to baseline having fitness standards so they can not only perform at a high level but have a healthy retirement to me that's the fire prevention perspective on our own health most definitely you know that i think people need to look at the life they want after they retire and not a lot of not enough people do that you know they either don't think about or allow their professions to influence their health to a point where they won't recover it after um, and what I was going to ask you, in regards to that fire prevention, 
Did that include all aspects of the building, for example, checking out the integrity of, like, let's say, anything that's made from wood, the electrical component, like every single thing was covered? Yeah, because what it would be covered under would be the uh, inspections that now are you know woven with fire inspections. So there'd have to be, you know, um, firewalls, you know, like certain thickness of certain materials to stop it traveling through the attic. You know, wiring would have to be up to code. So between the building and the fire departments, um, they're working hand in hand to make sure that you're not creating an environment to, to start a fire. You're not creating an environment for fire to spread. And then obviously you give the occupants the ability to be alerted and get out before it's uh, too dangerous. So if we looked at, for example, our allopathic profession or even our option of health professionals, and we looked at the fact that, okay, if that was provided by, let's say, a GP, and to a certain degree, we could say it is because you can also go to your doctor and get um, health, like blood tests. So this is important to understand that most people doing a blood test will have a, a specific question answered. Okay, for example, is my insulin high? Um, how are my markers, my cardiovascular markers? When those tests from allopathy come back negative, we can falsely assume that we're healthy. But in reality, we're just not sick. Okay, so what I'd imagine that we'd have to add with the fire prevention here is that we, we do that Okay, we definitely do that. We do our blood tests and all of our, you know, other tests in regards to, to disease, but we also need to empower ourselves with information around what professionals I need to complement that. For example, here's a really good example. I was speaking about this this morning with, with gut health. A lot of people go, they know they've got something wrong with their gut and they'll, they'll go and get investigated, but typically the fecal samples that are done to test for parasites and other bacteria may come back negative. And so therefore they will assume, oh, I'm fine, I don't have a gut problem. However, we they need to go and have them tested further. There's other things that we can do to actually go deep on gut health, which is so important, we know that these days. So we just, I guess we need to understand the limitations of the people, you know, of those professions offering that and complement it with the, the tests that we need to do with health professionals around that. Mate, do you see what I mean there? Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, like, I do completely. It's funny because I look at the, to use your analogy and keep building on it, the allopathic tests are the smoke alarms and the CO2 monitors. Yes. They're the ones that tell you something is actually wrong. The rest of it is like we said, you know, the the, the construction of emergency doors, the wiring that's up to date, you know, the, the, the walls that aren't going to burn. Those are the things that are preventative element, you know, the structure Hold of the on. building. So, uh, yeah, so it's spot on. And I think the other thing to, to kind of tag on to what you've been talking about as far as the principles, this is what we see as paramedics, EMTs especially, is you will have someone who looks like shit and they hand you a bag of meds. But when they go to the doctor's office, even though they're 150 pounds overweight, their blood pressure will be 118 over 72. Oh, you're, you're within normal limits. Your cholesterol is here because you're on your statins. So all you're doing is you're masking, you're tricking the uh, the machines that we use to test those metrics. You're not actually fixing the root problem, which is you are carrying a huge amount of excess adipose tissue and your heart and lungs are completely deconditioned. And so everyone listening day in, day out runs on 50-year-old cardiac you know, victims that never come back and they're 
heartbroken husband or wife hands you this fucking grocery bag full of meds that look great when they were in a doctor's office, but they still died. Mate, nothing frustrates me more. Seriously. No, and I've seen that obviously countless times in my career. You know, like, and if I could re- relate it back to the start of my career with um, spinal care, and I would have people come in with obvious signs of a hernia, and it might have been like, let's say, a, a disc um, protrusion occurring, and they might have been on meds for ages, they've come to a chiropractor. This is a thing also that within the health profession, you might get a chiropractor, a physio, you might get a naturopath who actually functions allopathically, okay, but using natural interventions. So just because they're, they are those and more professions doesn't mean that they're looking at health as a whole. And that was me when I first graduated. So people would come in and I'd, you know, use this tool that I learned at university and like, oh, my God, okay, well, there's the adjustment. Um, good luck. And they'd come back after a couple of times and say, hey, the pain's gone. You know what I mean? So that in reality, no, they were never functioning like they should have. And I had luckily the opportunity to learn five or 10 years down the track that that dysfunction that they had stayed asymptomatic five or 10 years and they've come back and gone, you're amazing. Wow, remember I saw you five or 10 years ago. You took my pain away and I was young, so my ego loved that. (laughs) In reality, when we did the MRI at that stage, like, oh, my God, they've got a hernia now. They only had a disc protrusion before and now their disc is blown out. So that can be via the medication. It can be via so many other markers that, once again, if we're asymptomatic and clearly looking at someone's life, like these clients, they might have been sedentary, they might have been sleeping in really um, poor mattresses, might have been doing an exercise but incorrectly, they might have been a marathon runner running with one leg shorter than the other. Like there's all these causes, physical causes plus diet and emotional stuff. They might have been apparently okay, and I learned firsthand Now, nah, even using a, a natural intervention like an adjustment could be the worst thing you can do to someone helping them remove their pain and having them believe that they're fine because it, it happens all the time. Mate. We can talk about dozens of degenerative cases where the same thing happens and they end up worse or they actually lose their life because those signs were suppressed earlier on and they were following a model um, based around the presence or absence of symptoms. Well, I want to get to looking at spinal health and then you know my, my story, which includes foundation training, which sure. hands down saved my career. But before we do, let's go back to Sydney. I actually lived in Manly for a few months when I, when okay, I was traveling yeah. the world. I thought, yeah, it was in Manly. I was the only one in Manly for years. Quite possibly you went there. Probably, probably. So talk to me about, you said you were asthmatic as a baby. You're doing the, uh, the, the swimming, which I think is, is incredible. I wish they'd talked about respiratory strength during COVID as well. That would have been game-changing for some people. But what about the pain that you were enduring as a small child? Walk me through that. Yeah, mate, the pain basically accompanied any physical activity that I did. So whether it be, I used to run. I, I like long-distance running, so I'd run, I'd play Rugby and rugby league, actually, every day after school and surfed. And it was always just a part of physical activity. So I accepted it as normal. Um, It would be like a young child running and being out of breath after it and accepting that, oh, that just happens while you do that. And then it recovers after that. So kids have this amazing ability to, um, 
I guess for their symptoms to subside fast, you know, they're naturally strong in most fronts. And I assumed that that was that. So it got to a certain age around, I guess, 18, where it stopped me in my tracks. And I remember like it was basically surfing. You know what also? It also coincided with me starting to go out and have a few beers and thinking that was a normal, that's in the food pyramid in Australia, alcohol. So, you know. <laughs> base layer, that, isn't it? Too yeah. <laughs> and, and I'd have a big day um, after surfing and be outstanding and a couple of beers and then because alcohol is a muscle relaxant, so obviously any of the protection, the reflex muscle guarding that my spine was getting was removed combined with the fact that I was dancing or standing for a long time at a party and then waking up the next day like absolutely stopped in my track. So that was when I, I was surfing one day and I was surfing with Tom Carroll, who's a three-time world champ, back in the day, mentioned back pain and he recommended chiropractic. So this is the beautiful thing in life that I learned early, you never ignore coincidences because they're not coincidences. And around the same time, in that week, I was working at the health food store and already studying science. And this guy's come in on a Saturday morning and said, oh, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm doing a Bachelor of Science. He said, what are you doing that for? What, to work with a pharmaceutical company one day. What are you going to do with it? I said, I don't know. You know, I just didn't know. I didn't get what I wanted to do. I wanted to study vet science. And I think physio didn't get in. And um, I just thought I'll do this. He said, mate, you should study chiropractic. I just went to the chiropractor hobbling this morning and I'm fine now, walking normally, pain-free, and I was fascinated. I was like, what? And straight away I imagined that the chiropractor used some elaborate machine or something else. And I said, what did he do? He said, just used his hands. He said, I was there for 10 minutes, paid 50 bucks, and it was just with his hands. I was fascinated. And because my dad was, he had, I guess his job was his business and it involved long days and social catch-ups after work. So I wouldn't see much of dad until, let's say, after 6.30 at night. I was always in my mind to find a profession that would allow me time with future family. And, you know, my first experience with chiropractic was exactly that because I tried to book in. It's like, oh, no, that day I'm sailing. Oh, that afternoon I'm not working. Like, when do these guys work? But then I saw what they did is they just blocked, you know, their days in a way that allowed them to also look after their health, which appealed to me to be able to structure my life and my work life around something that's going to favour my well-being. Um, so that's what, yeah, that's what led me to chiropractic, you know. And I mean, there's stages to that, mate, because I, I went into this profession, well, studying a profession that I understood very little about. And, you know, scraped through orthopaedics back in the day and a few other subjects, but really excelled in the manual part, the chiropractic adjustment part. And you come out of chiropractic not really knowing the power of what you're going to be delivering. And this is important not only to chiropractors, but also people from any health profession. It's the, the body has the power to heal itself. We know that. It can only be impeded from doing so if there's blockages so all chiropractic does is remove blockages so that the body can heal itself and a lot of us come out we have zero idea of how the nervous system works and the fact that the nervous system is encased within the spine and the spine can be affected by physical things like posture and falls which can end up affecting the nervous system so it was it was only with time and going to peru 
where I'd take my table up to the Andes and treat. My, the busiest day was 220 people in a day. I worked 18 hours nonstop. But I'd do regular campaigns with the poorer people in the Amazon, a place called Iquitos and, and Wayne Kayo in the Andes. That's when I realised, my God, that was the power of the human body. Obviously, the power of chiropractic to help, but the power of the body to heal itself because I had very little experience. I did, you know, technically what I knew I had to do, but it was really them coming back and telling me, oh, my God, you know, that pain down my leg has improved or that headache that I had improved or I haven't had a period for six months or six years I had my period last night. I've been constipated for months. I went had a, a bowel motion. Um, I know that in that answer, mate, I know that there's a lot involved there. So if I got off track, I'm sorry about that. But there's a, yeah, that's, I look back and I think it's just a beautiful evolution from having back pain to finding what I was meant to do and learning firsthand about health from my clients. Because, you know, we can't expect to to know all of this off the straight when we graduate, but if we ask the right questions, which is really important, if, if you're not asking when did this start, why did this happen, why do you think, what it coincide with, as opposed to, oh, what do I do to get rid of the pain? The question's everything. So I'd really encourage everyone, even with their own health, to ask the right questions and to have any hope of getting the solution to get on top of the problem they're suffering from. Absolutely. I think it's it's so arrogant to think that a pill or a surgery, um, and I'm talking more in the chronic disease world, I'm not talking about you got your femur snapped into, um, you know, is is a better choice than the body's natural ability to heal, to regenerate, you know, and, and I think that we we see that in ancient wisdom, in in ancient medicine, you know, with from chiropractic to um you know, acupuncture and, you know, the herbal medicines that clearly lasted millennia because it worked and then, you know, come into to modern medicine. Don't get me wrong. There's some drugs I use as a paramedic that are phenomenal, but more often than not, they're actually based on, you know, substances that exist in the natural world. And the same with surgery. I mean, there's some incredible surgeries that are absolutely life-saving. There's some, you know, things that are happening to people that have been paralyzed or you know all the things that that absolutely modern medicine is helping but when it comes to the chronic disease management there's a a complete almost like heresy element to how dare you suggest that food could reverse heart disease or diabetes when it can so how dare you suggest that it can't totally totally and that's the danger where you get most of the world like people talking about what they think is the same thing but with just with a different angle you know what I mean? And I'm with you too. Like after having the most severe pain I've ever felt for two months and fighting it because my specialty in Brazil and Peru, but more Brazil, was helping people avoid surgery. And then I'm like, how can it be that my case is surgical? So I fought it, fought it, fought it for two months, suffered the most pain I've ever felt. Thank God for modern medicine. Thank God for a procedure called microdiscectomy that went in there laparoscopically, cleaned up the disc material, didn't hamper or affect my biomechanical function. I've come back stronger than ever. So when we need those tools and they're there, we need to realise what they're doing and we need to go back independently of the problem. If we do use medication or um, surgery, we need to go back and, and look at the underlying function. As you said before, someone may suffer a cardiovascular problem Great. If you needed that, if it got to an emergency state or crisis and you use medication, fine. 
but please don't accept that you're boosting your health by continuing on with that, whether it be a statin, something controlling what cholesterol, blood pressure, whatever. Go to your diet. Go to your stress levels. Mate, that's another thing these days, that word stress. People associate that with losing their, their shit in the traffic and giving someone the bird. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about any situation where the body has to adapt to a situation that puts it in a state where hormonally, particularly cortisol, will alter to be able to deal with that situation. Um, so if we understand that response, then we go and we understand that elevated cortisol is pro-inflammatory. And if we do have an underlying low back problem or a headache or whatever, if we're inflaming it via stress, we're inflaming it via diet, okay, or anything else, well, of course, inflammation builds on inflammation. So that's where you need to know, okay, there's the fire brigade, there's the allopathic option, the medical option, and there's what I need to do to actually truly boost my health. And, and as I said, we said at the start, benefit from any crisis so that you're stronger than ever, okay? Too many people accept that aging is just going to slow them down and make things more difficult. That's not the case at all. No. Well, and that's when you again go back to the more um, indigenous groups around the planet. You know, I shared a, a Haitian man a few months ago on Instagram, and he was doing an interview and he was talking about he could have quit. He was in his 80s and looked like he'd be on the front cover of Muscle and Fitness. It was ridiculous. Um, and he was saying, yeah, but I don't want to stop working because then I'll become a burden to my children. And this guy, I mean, just was in phenomenal shape. Now, you know, what do we think about when we think of 80s in, you know, especially UK, America, you're thinking like, wow, you made it 80. You know, you're probably going to be 100 pounds heavier. You're maybe dragging around a nasal cannula the whole time. You're in an electric wheelchair. But, you know, the, the, the lifespan um, and the health span of a human being, if we look at other cultures, you know, again, removing disease and, and some of the things that killed the more ancient tribes, we have the ability to have 100 years of health, like a beautiful 100-year lifespan if we don't, you know, just give up. And the number of people that are younger than me, I'm 49, that, you know, totally accepting that they're on, you know, diabetes meds as you said statins um beta blockers whatever it is well i am 40 yeah you're 40 that's not even halfway through you know if you were going to live to be 100 so we've got to change our entire mindset and again focus on pre 100 years ago and outside the industrial areas and see the potential of of not just a lifespan but a, but as i said a health span a, a healthy um, you know, nurturing life right until the very end. Mate, 100%. Couldn't agree more. Um, our, our life should be like a, a light globe. Light globes don't lose their shine bit by bit as they go, do they? They're shining away and then one, one day to the next, boom, gone. So that should be us, as you said, around 100. Now, I write, it's not ironic. What's the word? I say? Sadly, these days, there's people in their 30s and 40s that are losing their shine already. Even earlier, that's dying to me. They won't officially die till, I don't know, put it, is it, an, is it 60, is it 70? Okay, but they are dying. If you're not, if you're in a process that's degenerative and leading you that way, okay, that's, that's a process. Um, as opposed to you shining and you being functional to a point where you go to bed one night, you just don't wake up. You know, so 
on on a positive note, if there is one angle here, I see a lot of people that abuse their health. And look, when I say that, like we're talking about, they're not informed. So it's not their fault, obviously, you know, but they're not instructed earlier on. And they're still getting to their 70s. Yeah, that's usually 60s, 70s. These people have smoked, drunk. My mum would be an example. She's 79, 80 this year. But if you do that and still make it to 70 or 80, what about if you do everything right? You're easily late 80s, 90s, 100. Okay? Unless you suffer what we've always suffered, accidents and other things, you know. But other than that, it's I think a lot of people, if they're in that process of being overweight or having some process going on, that it's very hard to imagine that things can be turned around. And we need to have the belief that the body heals itself. If you give it the conditions and you let it do what it's going to do, then you'll benefit from that. You know, we don't do this to have a number, to make a certain number. We do it to be functional. We do it to do all the things we love doing today and continue without getting to a point in time and go, well, I can't do that anymore. I love surfing. I'd hate to think that I'm limited when I'm 80 and I can't surf, you know what I mean, or relate with others or whatever it is, lose that passion for life. And it's beautiful when you run into people in their 80s and 90s rocking it still and you can sit down and have a chat with them it's not rocket science. What they come out with are just simple, I guess, rules that we forget because there is a lot more information now. There's amazing supplements for mitochondria and all this and red light and technology, but it's the basics. You've got to have the basics in place first. The rest of them are just nice bonuses that augment other other processes. But, yeah, it, I remember my gardener in Peru, what inspiration he was, 88. He's 88. I actually felt bad employing someone initially, you know, oh, I'm going to feel bad. Should I feel bad employing an 88-year-old to do my garden? He's the happiest person. He'd run 14 kilometres three times a week. And when we sat down to have a chat about it, he was still in love, loved his wife, adored her, so that's important, had a lot of fulfilment from his family. He moved either through his work, gardening or running, okay, he he said, look, I never smoked. So he went to the obvious toxins. But we have to admit if you're in a South American country, there's toxins in the air, there's pollution from buses and trucks going past. So there wasn't a paranoia around it, but he knew that smoking was a toxin and alcohol. And he just cited really basic things around his diet. Peru, the fishing industry is big, so fish are a part of um, the diet there and fresh foods. He's 88, you know, easily looking at 100. Yeah, and again, um, that's so so basic and it was everything that people were, you know, really kept away from, you know, the the natural food without chemicals, without hormones, without antibiotics, time in daylight, community, movement, you know, I mean, all the things, you know, touching nature, whether it's in the ocean or getting your hands in soil, those are the basic tenets of health and good sleep, you know, and if I'm sure if you're working out, um, in a garden for eight hours and throwing in a run three times a week, you're probably going to sleep like a baby as well. Exactly. And, and mate, adding to that, and there's just one thing I, I meant to say when I meant to, when I said running is that anyone listening who's starting, it's really important to understand you don't have to run 14k a week. You can walk. You know, what I mean, just move. You know, like I'm sure the same benefit would have been obtained if he was walking. And actually there's a lot of studies, especially in the blue zones of the world, that indicate that that low intensity, longer duration exercise is better. And I can relate to that. 
my relationship with exercise at this time of my life, I'm 54, is much different to what it was 10 years ago, where I'd equate benefit with absolutely slogging myself. And now I'm aware for myself and my clients who train hard and I'm aware of the dangers of leaving cortisol elevated for prolonged periods of time. You know, so as encouraging to people getting into it and starting, just start moving. Just do what you can. If you're in pain, walk to, is it five minutes, 10 minutes? Just increase it and be patient with your body. Just, as we said, remove the blockages, give it time, let your body do what it's going to do and it'll heal itself. Well, speaking of healing yourself, firstly, you talked about your journey into chiropractic. What about you as a patient? You had all that pain up until, you know, you were late teens. Did you have relief yourself when you were under a chiropractor? Yeah, sure. So chiropractic from that point on was was always a really important part of my life. And I was lucky overseas because I, not long after graduating, I went to Peru and I was just excited by the fact of being a pioneer in places like Peru and Brazil. So I was a founding member of the Peruvian Association and Brazil helped start the first university course there and, and helped actually help get chiropractic and spinal care out there on television. I hosted a program on Fox of three years, all the rest. But at the start of that time, I was basing my need for care on pain for sure. Did not understand the full, firstly, the importance of having a nervous system that didn't have interference. But it took a while for me to understand that diet and sleep and emotional sides also are important. I thought you could train off a bad diet. It was only really around the mercury toxicity time that, and I'll talk about that, that I realised, no, diet's everything. You know, so it did pass a transformation there for sure. Um, and part of that would be um, that led me to spinal surgery, interestingly, is that we don't always feel pain. You mentioned that before. There's a lot of people that wake up feeling great and they pass away of a heart attack that day. So my case also, I'm one of those people who my body, when it's telling me, it's often way down into the red. It's way progressed. And that was the case. I turned 40, actually. I was uh, kite surfing and I, I surfed a right-hander for a week in one direction, the wave went, and with my spine being twisted by not changing my feet. The position on the board so basically adding on to everything else that had happened working the same side of the table all those years and uh lifting the heavy table up when i go and do the campaigns probably died as well was just the straw that broke the camel's back so you can see there that my relationship with chiropractic changed also over that time from being more pain-based to truly understanding what your body needs and then all those other factors that I mentioned, diet, the emotional side and all the rest. Ended up having surgery. As I said, that was humbling. But to go into surgery and not feel a couple of your toes and wake up and the first thing you're thinking of, oh, my God, I can feel my toes. It's like, hallelujah. And have that occur as a result, like, sorry, have that occur and then get the strongest spine I've ever had, actually learn the right way to strengthen it, weights, all the exercises involved and modify the way I was training, beautiful thing. You know, that's all already in my early 40s that I've had got the strongest back I've ever had and still have a spine that very rarely I feel spinal pain. And if I do, it's something I can pinpoint. It's all about the question, isn't it? 
oh, hang on, I woke up with pain. Oh, okay, well, that's right, I'm traveling and I slept in a soft mattress. Oh, you know what? Why is my back sore today? Ah, because I was in the garden yesterday pulling out weeds. Even though you can train a lot, the garden will ruin you every day of the week if you're not used to it. Absolutely. Um, do you know what I mean? So just things like that, learning to ask the right questions and then, and you know, most of the time, mate, when I'm in back pain now, my go-to is going for a very long walk and getting back to my stabilization exercises. Going to a chiropractor, I do that regularly. I also include a physio if I know some good physios around or deep soft tissue massage. So it's that whole thing with time of us building up our little team of health professionals that we rely on to keep us functioning well, the same way that we would have a car that we care for getting regular maintenance from a mechanic. There's no different at all, you know, if we want that car to function and last a long time. When I was, how old would I have been? It was about 10 years ago now, so 39-ish. Um, I pulled my back at my last fire department. It wasn't anything heroic. It wasn't a fire. It was a gentleman, not a very big gentleman, having an anxiety attack, swore he was dying, wanted to go to hospital. And just the way the the ambulance, the rescue was parked, the the stretcher it was kind of on an angle so the stretcher wouldn't go in so i kind of arched my back to to lift him up felt this pop in my back drove to the hospital first got him out and off um and then once we came out i told my partner like something's wrong and again i've you know been through a lot up to that point done stunts and kickboxing and all kinds of things so i know you know when i'm hurt rather than when i you know, just tweak something um and very well. I'll give you actually. I'll give you the longer story because of what we talked about earlier. So the initial workman's comp thing that I have to go to is a local clinic. Um, I see this one PA who, and you know, I I understand that he's completely right. Gave me, um, I don't even know if he did an X-ray then, but anyway, he said Look, you're going to need a few days for it to go down. So you know, here's the note for a few days off at first, then come back in, um, and then we'll talk about what's next. So I'm like, okay, that perfectly understandable so i go back a few days later but it's a different guy this pa pa is about 350 pounds winded by the time he even makes it to the exam room and proceeds to tell me because i was already pursuing okay what about you know physical um physical therapy i want to get back on the on it as soon as i can and then an mri that is still killing me you know let's find out what it is right from the beginning and then we can have a treatment plan and he basically said no i'm not giving you any of those Here's a prescription for pain medication. Here's a prescription for uh, muscle relaxers. I'm ordering you to take them. Now, firstly, this is a PA in a separate clinic, so his orders don't mean anything. So I was like, all right, fine. So I walked out, rescheduled with the first doctor, got my physical you know, therapy prescription, got my MRI, and it turned out that I had torn three ligaments in my back. One of my vertebrae actually rotated laterally. <laughs> when I lifted my leg, not supposed to do that. So, you know, fucked myself up pretty badly and there was bulges and all kinds of things. And so initially went through the physical therapy that was covered by my work, but then I paid out of pocket for a chiropractor. Um, I think it went like four times a week, like really just kind of all in trying to get it figured out. And while I was there, he was playing a video of a dude standing doing this weird pose, which ended up being foundation training. But my whole thing was, you know, because they, you know, the one guy, of course, it would have been pain meds, and then ultimately it would have been surgery. That's what all the other people I know were kind of sent into. But my thing was this: you know, what was it that caused it? 
I was exercising well. I was doing CrossFit, but I was also doing yoga. You know, I was doing things properly and I had a background in movement. So it wasn't like I went from zero to a hundred. So what is it about my body that causes injury? Because if I just get sliced and diced, I haven't fixed the problem. So then I dive into foundation training and literally my recovery goes from, you know, on, a, on an angle, a 10% increase to like a 45, uh, sorry, uh, 10 degree increase to like a 45 degree increase in my recovery is absolutely phenomenal because I understand now, ah, you know, I've got this anterior pelvic tilt. I've got short hamstring. This is now why I tore myself and ended up going not only back to work, but um, about three months later, we had a fundraiser for, I do every year for firefighters and it was 225 pound deadlifts in this kind of pseudo CrossFit style thing. And they felt amazing. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like I just stopped the pain. I'd figured out why I got hurt and I'd made it stronger and more mobile. So that was a huge aha moment for me that I think kind of circles around to what you were talking about is just because you're out of pain doesn't mean that you're you're healed, doesn't mean that you're thriving. So talk to me about, um, you know, you were talking about treating pain alone before. What shifted in your chiropractic philosophy and then talk to me about how you discovered foundation training specifically. Yeah, sure. Um, mate, I was just going to add to you one thing. I didn't want to forget this point, and it's relevant to what you were talking about with insurance before, that Please. a lot of people base their ability to care for themselves or what they should do around what their insurance will cover. And it's really important to understand that, okay, it's, it's exactly the same as insurance for your car. When I say exactly, usually. Uh, meaning that insurance will protect you if the car's stolen or if you have an accident, but it will not pay for your regular maintenance with the mechanic. Okay, so for anyone who has insurance, please don't let that dictate whether you are going to go and pay out of your own money. Okay, when I say pay, it's actually invest because the insurance company pays for the result of lack of function, disease, crisis, all the rest. We need to invest in Cairo, in foundation. And when I say investment, it could be uh, time or money, okay? But it's an investment. So it, it's an encouragement to those people to please break out of that paradigm of letting insurance dictate whether it's health-related or not because it's usually not. It's crisis, just like a car. All right, mate, so with me, um, my metamorphosis, I'd say, was the really important one was diet, Okay. Diet was important because, as I said, I thought that I could train off a bad diet. And what I saw with time is around the time I was operated, I had a chiropractor who worked for me who was about 100 kilos, and, and he'd, he'd do over the years lots of soft tissue with me, and I'd be really sensitive and, you know, intolerant to a lot of pressure. And so around that time I understood about diet and I changed my diet pretty radically and not only that, but everything. I stopped drinking alcohol. I started to alkalize a lot more with, let's say, apple cider vinegar or sodium bicarbonate. Within about a month or six weeks, I couldn't feel the pressure he was putting on my spine. And I'd say, mate, put more pressure. And he goes, I am. I said, he would literally put his elbow into my paravertebral muscles, my low back, and lift his whole body off the ground, and it was tolerable. Whereas before, a tenth of that wasn't. So... And that's something that I observed over the years but foolishly didn't join the dots on it earlier where I was living in Sao Paulo, big city, 
lots of stress, compromised diet, people work 12 or 14 hour days and sometimes they go and study. What's their outlet? Fun, restaurants, drinking, all the rest, you know? So, and I'd come across many patients who I'd palpate their spines. I'd be like, what's going on here? It felt like a brick, you know, like this wooden table here. And I'd say, hey, what's your diet like? You know, I always ask people to give themselves a score for their diet, zero to 10, their hydration, zero to 10, their sleep, zero to 10. And often hydration would be zero. I mean, what do you mean? I don't like water. What do you mean you don't like water? You need water. You're not drinking water. No, no, I just drink Coca-Cola. Well, sorry about mentioning that, but a fizzy drink. <laughs> um, so can you see what I mean? That like it was time that helped me join the dots on just how important diet was, which coincided with the time of surgery. Yeah. And after that, look, my thing now, and I would say that I'm differentiated from a lot of other professionals, even those who work with whole well-being and, and health, is the fact that you need to look at chemical, emotional and physical. So if we go back to physical, let's go to you putting that patient into the ambulance. More than likely, not always, but more than likely, there was a degree of dysfunction beforehand. And the incident is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the last thing. And that's what a lot of people go, oh, hang on, the pain only started last week. And you're like, well, yeah, look at your x-rays. You've got osteo, osteo um, I'm thinking in Portuguese, we're speaking about Brazil, osteoarthritic spurs that are 10 or 20 years evolving and you've never felt pain till now. Oh, no, but it was last week. You're like, it's actually not. You can't remember it. We've got to remember gravity is a cause of dysfunction. It'll never cease. Posture, mattresses, all the falls we have when we're younger. We have more than 2,000 falls in the first five years of life when we're learning how to walk. All of this and more can compromise the biomechanical function of our spine the same way that all the potholes and bumps in a road will compromise the alignment of a wheel. We'll go over a big hole. We won't feel that straight away. So we can drive thousands of kilometres often before we'll even notice the car vibrate or notice that that particular tyre where the wheel's misaligned is wearing out faster than the others. So once we understand that and we combine that with, as I said before, anything that's inflammatory, your stress, your cortisol, poor sleep, okay, any emotional stuff, all of our old traumas, if they're affecting us to the point where they're elevating cortisol, and I'll explain that, I think it's really important to explain, that's when we've, we've got the best effort or the best, sorry, the best um, tools and strategy to correct our pain-spinal problem. So as soon as we get past that pain, mate, and we go, oh, we're going deeper. So foundation, fantastic. Mate, I've only been doing foundation for a year with Jesse and actually with Johnny Gannon back home in Australia, and I love it, you know, because good. here's a lesson. We're always learning about our body. And last week, Jesse and I probably did it three times in different places, but in one of the groups he explained the importance of the adductors, okay, the inside muscles of our legs and the fact that a lot of us have those adductors shortened. And I think this has come from Eric, you know, Eric Goodman, founder of um, Foundation. But... I've thought that's exactly the way I'm working. I'm working with my feet splayed like a lot of professionals are. And what's that doing to the adductors? It's shortening them and they attach on the pubis bone. So in foundation, 
when we can internally rotate those feet, I love that and focus on the breath. That's another thing that's really helped me. And I see the importance around the stabilization of the spine. Love it. As Jess said as well, he says, it's like low hanging fruit. It's easy. You can incorporate your prep, foundation prep, before your exercise. I love that as well because that's the hardest thing when you're working with people who have busy lifestyles, having them do something that's not an hour of their time before they get to do jiu-jitsu, the thing they love, or surf. You know what I mean? Like most of the time, time, time is important, so someone actually ends up ignoring what they should do so that they can prioritise what they love doing. Mate, um, so just I, that was long-winded, my answer to you, but did that, did that answer what you wanted to know there as far as what surgery did and leading me to foundation and, and yoga? Yoga is another one that's really helped me. Um, steering away from running. Mate, I stopped running. One of my biggest health regrets, I'll tell you, is marathon running. If I could turn back time, I would not have run. I would have sprinted and I would have activated my type 2 fast twitch muscle fibres and I would have done it for a short amount of time and a very intense um, experience every time to benefit physiologically much more than what I gained from long-distance running. Uh, what else will change? Yeah, diet, as I said, really important. But I've always luckily been um, really attent to postural influences. For example, the way people sit, the mattress they, they sleep on, and most of it because of myself. So I, I wrote a book called The Secret of the Healthy Spine. That book came from five years of me documenting every problem that was coming in. And to tell you the truth, 80% of the physical causes were already complete in three months, but just over five years when the odd one had come in, that we all do the same things incorrectly. You know, so if we understand those, the younger or the early in life, the better, great. Was, and with time, as I said, the, 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 the chemical issues, such as sugar, dehydration, chemicals, okay, toxins, the effect on our body and uh, inflammation and the importance of food, staying away from vegetable oils, yeah, this information's pretty accessible these days to most people. And they're choices that if we know, if we have the information, very easy to make. So talk to me about sitting. When I look back, what was I missing prior to when I got hurt? And I agree 100%. I definitely pre-injured doing, uh, ironically, deadlifts in, in CrossFit before. But was that what hurt me? No. It was the straw before the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, what... What was I doing as a firefighter? I mean, of course, as we've alluded to before, not sleeping. I mean, just, just, I think this is another part of the sea deprivation element that doesn't get spoken about as much. But I, I had uh, Dr. Stuart McGill on the show speaking of back health. And he was like, oh, no, it's not if you get hurt, it's when you're going to get hurt. If you're not sleeping, you're not healing, you're not repairing, you are going to get hurt. It is a foregone conclusion. Sure. Um, so, you know, you have that, but also you have. You think of the fire service as a very um, athletic career, and at times it absolutely is. But most of the time, we're in the seat of a fire engine, the seat of an ambulance. We're in the back treating a patient. We're in the hospital writing reports. We're watching online training in the, in the office. You know, now we're finally getting a rest. Now we're in a lazy boy watching some TV between calls. Sit, 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 sit. And then now at the moment, I mean, this is my second interview today. So this is like four hours in this yeah, chair. Yeah, yeah. My wife yeah. I is in one seat too and I'm moving around. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little fidgety right now. Yeah. Um, but then my wife's 300 miles away in um, 
in medical school, optometry school. So that's a 300 mile, four, four and a half hour drive one way, four and a half the other. So we, even though I'm active and I do jujitsu and I do, you know, the, the training at my CrossFit gym now, and I walk my dog for miles every day, it's permeated by lots of inactivity. So, you know, I, you talk about the book, I'd love to hear the the main elements that you recognize, but is one of them sitting and, and talk to me about the impact of that, not only on, on the lower body, the hips, but also the neck, especially with these devices that a lot of the kids have these days. All right, let's go. Firstly, the spine's a machine, okay? It's happy when it's moving. When we're in a seat, that's not the case. So we're not meant to sit. That said, I'm not saying don't sit. I'm just saying we have to recognize that seats are, they're also a pretty new invention, you know. Most indigenous tribes won't have a seat. They'll be squatting and, you know, doing other stuff. But anyway, so we recognize that it needs to move. So if we want to improve our situation and we do have to see it, we have to move more. Now, NASA did a study within the last five years, I can't remember exactly what year, that challenged, it didn't actually discard, but it challenged the, that idea that we needed to walk five minutes an hour, which is beneficial, but they were just saying, hey, every five minutes, stand up, sit down. You can do that five, six times. Okay, or I tell people when you have a phone call, if you do, why not stand up and, you know, walk on the spot? So sitting, that's already bad. Secondly, combine the fact that a lot of people, if they're sitting in a chair that's not adequate right now, I'm sitting on a bench. So this is my place and I wouldn't sit here for long periods of time. And I'll explain what happens on a bench in a minute, but that isn't ideal. And even if they do have an ergonomic chair, which they should have, if they're sitting with their glutes forward, their buttock forward, then they're losing that curve in the lower back. So we need to be sitting way back, okay, supported. Now, how does it affect, because you just mentioned other areas of the spine? Well, if we're sitting incorrectly and the glutes go forward, we lose that curve in the lower back, and I'll explain the importance of curves, we go up to the mid back and that's rounded, okay, to compensate for that. That sh throws our shoulders forward and our head forward. So by sitting correctly, we start with a base that allows the rest of our spine to be supported. The easiest way to understand this, mate, is if we understand the center of gravity and how that should fall through our body. It should fall through our ear, shoulder, hip. If we were standing knee and ankle, so when we're sitting, if our hip, our knee, and our shoulder are all aligned, we know that a minimum of force from gravity will be going through our spine. However, if we sit incorrectly, once again, with those glutes forward, we curve, our head weighs five kilos. For every one centimetre that the head, the ear, sorry, goes forward of the shoulder, overloads our lower neck by five kilos. So you can imagine people like dentists, hairdressers, Anyone who's forced in their profession to work with a forward head uh, posture, that anterior head carriage, huge amount of load on their lower neck, and that'll speed up arthritis. Let's go to curves. I referred to curves a few times there. Let's compare two animals to understand the importance of curves. Okay, so having curve means we have mobility. So if, if we're sitting incorrectly and we're losing that curve, it's similar to being a giraffe. Have you ever seen a giraffe pick something up off the, the ground? 
has to separate its legs, doesn't it? It can't bend its neck. It's, it's a straight neck. Okay, so it's got no mobility because it's straight. Compare that to a flamingo. A flamingo can turn 360 degrees because it's got two curves in its neck. So curves permit movement. Okay. Now, I'll ask anyone listening right now, if they're sitting, just to sit, throw those shoulders forward, like to the worst posture possible, and try and turn from left to right, right? It's limited. Now, sit up straight with the ear above the shoulder, now turn left to right. I personally have about 30 or 40% more range of motion in rotation. Why is rotation or mobility important? Because we're sitting for a long period of time. We're sitting for up to eight hours or more per day. We're in traffic often to get to work, public transport. We're sitting to eat and we often sit at home watching television, let's say, or doing other stuff. That's a large percentage of our life. So you can imagine how that compounds over time and has really negative effects if we're not respecting that bare minimum of maintaining posture and to, to improve upon that, just get up and move around often. Um, so there you go, mate. That was a long-winded answer once again, but it's important to go into the theory on sitting because it is, it really is, um, it's, I guess it's one of the most common causes of not only low back pain but neck pain as well these days. And, and the, the pressure, the load that goes on our spine when we're sitting is seven to ten times more than when we are lying on the ground. Yeah, that's a lot, isn't it? You know, so you combine, let's say, a childhood fall or some other trauma way back in the day that was asymptomatic forever. So you're not not you don't not aware of it, and then you're sitting a lot. You can imagine how that load is just compromising that segment even more. Absolutely, the um, the bench you were going to talk about. I wrote a book about three years ago, and it's funny. I'm writing my second one now, and I'm not doing this because of what I observed during my first. I've got these Indian oak, beautiful kitchen table. You know, it's like a, a long family one. There's wooden chairs um, and then a freaking heavy ass bench. And this table, you know, you, you bang into it with your foot. It is not moving. You may as well just kick a tree. You know what I mean? So it's so effing hard. And I wrote the book and wasn't really thinking about it, but after you know it was done and everything when i would go to deadlift in the gym i would literally have pain down my hamstrings and i realized that it must have been my posture and i think I'd, i would tuck my feet underneath and wrap the legs as well um so now i've actually elevated my feet on my couch with my laptop on my lap which seems to be a lot more forgiving for these kind of you know two-hour writing sessions so sure. talk to me about the bench because i'm curious to hear you know the the um uh, musculoskeletal yeah. reason why yeah, yeah, yeah. I effed myself up. <laughs> yeah, you might have noticed noticed me adjusting my position quite a bit here. So on a bench, if you are vigilant and you sit and you're aware of maintaining yourself upright, great. However, gravity will almost always win, especially if we're distracted and we just relax. So what started as a position that was maintaining that curve, okay, the lumbar curve would be, a curve, let's say, that is concave backwards, you know, like to the back of our body. With time, as we curve down by gravity, we lose that. So that's what benches do. They don't have that back support that other chairs would have to prevent prevent that. 
And I'd suggest to anyone who, firstly, don't don't work on a bench. You know, do what you can to change that. Um, buy yourself a chair, invest in a chair. If you're working for a company that won't buy your good office chair, just buy yourself a good lumbar support. Make sure that you support that curve so that you don't lose it during the day. It's very similar to our neck curve, mate. What happens these days, we talk a lot about the texter's neck, right? We talk about that forward head position, that anterior carriage. So that curve, the, the neck curve, is what suffers most when the head goes forward, yeah? And so we get a, a rectified rectification of the cervical curve. Um, so we look at strategies to maintain that. And I'll often work with, let's say, a towel under the neck at the end of the day. I'll obviously work with education around maintaining that straight posture, uh, work around the level, the, the height of the computer being at eye level instead of low so you don't have to look down. So you really have to look at all these little things and more to make sure that you're not doing something that's compromising that because it's a very long time. It'd be like having, um, let's say, something that's going to cause a tooth decay over time a lot faster than another food that won't. You know, you're speeding up degeneration. And unfortunately, with bony degeneration, a lot of other organs can be replaced. We can't replace the spine. You know, if you get stenosis in the spinal canal or stenosis is narrowing, by the way, sorry. If you get narrowing around the canal from degeneration or the foramina on the side that hold the, the encase the nerve roots, that can be a world of pain. You know, if you, people get to an age where surgery is difficult, you don't want to bank on that because the spine cannot be seen the same way that the teeth can. It's very easy to forget spinal health. Okay, it's very easy just to let years go by and not think about it until that day. Now, you might be able to relate to this, mate. That day that you had your crisis, it's a lottery. At that moment, a lot of people find out, oh, thank God it wasn't a serious problem. It's resolved fast. But for other people, they find out that they have a serious problem that's irreversible. What a shame. You know, and then it's not like the tire of a car that can be replaced. It's worn out. Okay, now we have surgery to replace discs. We do have that. However, even if someone has surgery and they replace the tire, let's say, how often are they coming along and looking at the alignment of the wheel and going, hang on, I've got to look at the underlying problem and fix that. So what's the cause of the underlying problem? Sitting, texting incorrectly, laptop use, sleeping face down in a bed. It's funny, I, I did a post recently on sleeping face down quite a few physios were like, why well, you got to sleep any way you can and comfortably like, no, it just doesn't make sense that you start spend six to eight hours of your life, sorry, the, the, your day, let's say 30% of your time with your head turned to one side only. Most people who sleep face down prefer one side because there's chronic shortening of the muscles over time. So they find it difficult to turn the other way. But there, there's only three or four, you know, there's many other causes but sitting's got to be up there with one of the most important things people can rectify to get long-lasting benefit. I won't only say results, you know, that they'll the measurable results, but actual benefit to their health. 
I had a guy on years ago who's a British guy who was kind of the sleep guru for a lot of sports teams, especially in the UK. And it was his stance was more about the actual bedding. So he would create bed rolls for each of these athletes that fit them specifically, the kind of, you know, the firmness, the length, et cetera. And they would put it on the hotel floor. So they wouldn't use the hotel bed. They would sleep in the floor, yeah. um, on the floor. But um, it was interesting because I remember even now it really stuck with me he was talking about what they assume is probably the natural way to sleep. You know, if you go back humans a long, long time ago and he was th said, just think about defense. He said, if you're face down, that's the most submissive position Love you could it. be in. If you're yeah. face up, you know, you're, you're still vulnerable, but you're at least you can look. And then you have your dominant and your non-dominant side. So there's one side where if you were attacked, you are most likely to be able to push off, et cetera, et cetera. And that always stuck with me because I knew, I know, you know, if I, if I do have a drink or two, I'll find myself rolling over on, on my stomach and that's the worst sleep and you yeah. end up with a crick in your neck. Yeah. But if, uh, you know, when I first go to bed and, and hopefully it stays, if I'm you know having a good sleep, it'll always be my left side facing up and I'm left legged. So that's what I would kick with. So I don't know I if you've had that. any exposure to that, but I've never heard anyone say it since. But whether he's right, wrong, it doesn't matter. It, to me, it it makes sense. I mean, I don't know if they can prove it or not, but it really does make sense and kind of add some answers to how should I actually lie when I sleep. Yeah, yeah. Firstly, I've never heard it. I'm totally aligned with what he said and the reasons for it makes sense. Even what your dominant side on your side would be, it might be facing the door or the entrance, you know, like, and the other way you're not as uh, prepared. So I, all I'd say traditionally lying on your back, great. Compare, for example, um, Indian and Chinese culture. They still, I remember going studying acupuncture in Sri Lanka and the Indian teacher was in the Marriott in a beautiful bed or potentially, but he chose to sleep on the floor. And a lot of people do. Um, and we'll talk about why in a tick, but the other one is the Chinese, so they favour that as well. Now, what I like about that, let's imagine two situations where someone's sleeping on their belly. I don't have the model of the spine here, but if you had the model of the spine, you can imagine that the, the spine could sag into the, the mattress, okay? Obviously, depending on how, how soft or hard that mattress is. As that sags, if you look at the anatomy of the spine, in extension it goes to a certain point and it doesn't go past that. You know, it's blocked by, by a bony approximation. Can you imagine having a few drinks lying face down and so you're not getting the pain signals after you have alcohol and you're sleeping on your belly? That can totally inflame those joints, okay? And it does. And I remember back in the day when I do the same thing, I can relate to it. So, yeah. We, we can imagine if we slept on our back, then that beautifully opens that up. It can stretch those ligaments and stretch muscles, intrinsic muscles that have been shortened during the day. So it's a really good time to recover in all aspects from what we did during the day. On the side, pretty easy rule there, our spine should be aligned. Okay, so that means that if you had two pillows and your, your head was elevated, then your, your neck might be also inclined upwards then it's not aligned with the rest of the spine. So just make sure that you look at the density of the mattress and how far the body sinks, your hips particularly and your shoulders, and what size pillow you need to maintain that alignment. 
And for me, look, I've just worked with hundreds and hundreds of people over the years that they've come in, we're trying to look for the cause of their problem. It's a neck problem. I've palpated it. They can't recognize what's happened. And I'm like, why are the muscles shorter on the right than the left? Once again, all about the question, right? Um, and then gone, joined the dots and said, okay, how do you sleep? I'll face down. Uh, right. Can't sleep any other way. So it, firstly, we have to turn our head. And most people who sleep, sleep face down all the time will have one side they prefer. Very few can have both sides equal there. And the other one is that, as I mentioned, when you're sleeping face down, there's more of an accentuation of the lumbar curve. If the only exception I'd say here, mate, let's say we've got someone who suffers, suffers chronic insomnia or they're in pain. Like yesterday I was working with someone who before they had spinal surgery, the only way they could sleep was face down but supported. We'll just do the best to sleep face down but support those areas so you don't have an accentuation of the curve or an alteration. So you're causing a minimum of additional load. Does that all make sense? No, it yeah. does. It does. Actually, yeah. while you're talking, I want this is just personally for me now. I'm sure there's people out here that can relate to, but um, it doesn't seem to matter what I do, whether I have a period of abstinence from alcohol, you know, try and work on my stress. I've clenched in my sleep for a long time. I don't want to stick something in my mouth because, again, root cause, that's mm. just sticking a wedge in my mouth. That's not fixing why. I yeah, had my, yeah. my jaw dislocated when I was younger doing martial arts, um, so that didn't help. Um, and yeah. then, obviously, you add 14 years of being a firefighter and you know, sleep disruption and all the things, which also didn't help. Um, is there anything that you've applied to people that doesn't involve a mouth guard that you found help in that particular kind of um, Yeah, yeah. Great question. I can relate to this too because I used to do the same thing. So because we're already on the sleep position, let's imagine – that we all, I'm not saying we do, let's, but just let's imagine we all move our mouth during the night. You know, we might, you know, we're dreaming and that might manifest a little bit in movements of the mouth, okay, whether it be from stress or whatever else. If we're lying on our back, compare the difference in movement of the jaw to a position where we're lying on our belly and there's one side of our jaw in direct contact with the surface of the bed or the pillow. So you can imagine that the grind or so the movement of the jaw and the mouth will have more load on it because we're, we've got the weight of our head on it. So that straight off the bat is another reason why we should sleep on our back or our side and not our belly. Now, grinding, well, are you, when you say, are we talking at the grinding teeth too, mate? Yeah, is well, clen what? clenching to the point clenching, where I'll yeah. even have like sore traps the next morning just yeah. on the, you know. So yeah, obviously yeah, there's yeah. a there's a stress response going on. Yeah. So typically if I had clients that suffer from that, I'm going deeper as well and, and looking, you know, at their stress at the day, um, anything that might spike their cortisol and have them typically, you know, wake up two or three in the morning. That's often common when our levels are higher. That happens to me, for example, if I work physically but I train hard in the morning, it's just... A, I can jack my cortisol levels that way. It could be if we've got stuff on our mind. So then we've got to get into other things like how are we going to work on the mind? You know, I work with something called brain tap. I love it. It's technology that helps harmonize brain waves, but you also get a lot of success from meditation, from breath work. What's been helping is when I've had ice baths towards the end of the day now, not the start, real relaxation there. 
You know, another one that I should remember first off the bat is um, look at your neck. Yeah, if I come, if I get people with jaw problems and even sleep, if I look at C1, occiput C1, C1, C2, the higher cervical segments, very common that you've got something going on there as well. And it's not rare that after, especially the first adjustment I give someone for their neck when I found a bad problem, they'll come back and go, oh my God, I slept so much better. I was out like a light or I was late for work or whatever. So don't don't forget about the relationship that the neck has with those muscles that go over the skull to the jaw, okay? So much so that I'll, when I get jaw problems, very rarely will I work straight away with the jaw. I'll see, and this is only if I find neck problems, obviously, and usually I do, we'll work with that first. Most of the time they'll clear up. Brilliant. I'm actually seeing that there's, I've got a chiropractor I use in uh, near where my wife lives at the moment down there. So uh, I will ask him to specifically focus yeah. on that when I see him on Saturday. Mate, I'll throw one more tip in. This is going to help heaps. Um, there's these muscles inside your mouth called the pterygoids. Yeah. So you can actually, there's a really good stretch you do yourself. You can go and get a chiropractor or other therapist to do it, but you'll feel that if you open your mouth up or look at someone else's mouth and you'll see like a line of muscle to the side, left and right, you get there and as you open, you work that and it will hurt a bit. So I'll often do it in traffic and I'll do it when I feel like I've got this jaw congestion. That will help a lot because when these muscles are tight, let's imagine a lot of people when they train and they clench their jaw, they tighten, they shorten. You know, So that's a lot of load on that joint. It decompresses the joint. You'll probably notice that'll help as well. Okay. Beautiful. Well, Thank the you. Muscles. Brilliant. Yeah, it's funny. Ironically, when I wear my mouth guard when I'm doing jujitsu, I feel like my jaw is quite relaxed, you know, which is the opposite yeah. when I used to do kickboxing because you can't relax it too much when you get punched. Yeah. But it almost feel like that actually helps a little bit too. So I'll work on those, those, those exercises tonight. So thank you. No worries. So one more area that I want to go to, to surfing. But before we do, you mentioned teeth and decay. Um, talk to me about your dental journey and mercury. Oh, yeah. Okay. So dental journey. As a kid, every time I went to the dentist till about the age of 14, I got feelings. And I, it really peed me off because I looked after my teeth. I did everything I thought you had to do. And I was quite conscientious as a kid. You know, I took authority seriously, so I'd do what I was told. <laughs> whereas my brother didn't and he never got feelings. I was a bit peeved at that. But anyway, had these feelings put in, never thought too much about it. But over the years working in the health food store, I would uh, hear from people that had their feelings taken out or relate to health problems that came from feelings. And I would read up in some of the health magazines about the danger of mercury in feelings. And I actually observed the transition with time to feelings that didn't have mercury in them. There's always confusion around that because, you know, our Dental Association Australia was like, no, that's garbage, there's no, no risk and continued on with it while the European Dental Association stopped using mercury fillings decades ago. Um, anyway, I, living overseas, for some reason it was in my mind that I wanted these fillings out. I think I'd read also that if you grind, okay, we just mentioned that, that can actually, you know, heat the mercury up to a point where it gives off vapours. Or if you drink hot liquids like coffee or tea, it can also cause a degree of vaporization as well. So mercury is not stable in any state, liquid, solid or gas. But obviously it's more, it's safer if it's already in your mouth in a solid form. 
Now, there are easy, sorry, there are great and safe ways to remove the mercury fillings and you need to go to a special holistic dentist to do that. I just went to my dentist and I said, please remove them. And I had very little time. He had no oxygen for myself or himself. He had no dam, as they say, a dental dam. And I didn't think any of it. Had them taken out, had them replaced, happy days. Within, let's say, I can't remember exactly, okay, because I, I wasn't that aware that there was a relationship. But let's say within a year, I started to get chronic gastrointestinal problems. Like I'd literally go, I had diarrhea at least six times before I'd leave to go to work in the morning. Um, I felt tired. I knew something was wrong, okay? I'd, I'd actually take vitamins and I'd see them pass through whole. So I knew I was aware also that my absorption was suffering. And with time, I also noticed I had candida. So I had that white film over my tongue. Um, I'm just trying to remember exactly the sequence here, but if we take it back, I remember this started, my awareness around mercury actually came um, back to doing a, a spermogram, okay, and finding out that my sperm count was low, okay, and then from there thinking, hang on, I'm a healthy person, why would it be low? So then it, it sent me towards doing an MRI of the pineal gland because sometimes you get calcification over that, also the pituitary, um, and working out and figuring out that the FSH hormone and the luteinizing hormone were all out and then trying to figure out, hang on, I'm a young guy, I've got no obvious symptoms, but my testosterone's low. And it, it actually led me towards mercury, that you can actually have high mercury that affects the pituitary without calcification. And um, so I'm just trying to remember the sequence once again. But anyway, it did take me towards mercury. I got, oh, that's right. I went, that's right. This is beautiful. Back to the health food store. I was desperate. Like we are sometimes, we know something's wrong, desperate to find the answer. I was back in Australia. I give myself one month. So I chased up every health, um, functional health doctor or health option I had, fecal samples, blood tests, everything else, all fine. I had nothing. And I was basically told on it psychological. It's got to be psychological. You've got nothing going on. Um, and I remember actually sending fecal samples to the states because we to get other types of exams done that weren't offered in Australia. They wouldn't make it. They'd blow up the sample. They'd, they'd say, oh, we lost your sample because there's that much gas in there. It just blew the top off it. <laughs> so that was interesting. But yeah, um, on the no-fly list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Last week of this particular trip, I've gone to the health food store. Mum said, Jason, you've got to try this. Um one of my client's son has something exactly the same as you and he found out he had my high mercury. And I went straight back to the doctor that had been looking after me who was an allopath, he was a GP and a naturopath, and I asked him to do it. Just in time before I was going away, the results came in. It was off the charts. Zero to six is tolerable. I was 600. Bloody hell. The only other person he'd seen that was high was 225, and that was a guy who painted the Harbour Bridge in Sydney for 20 years. Unbelievable. So there's huge relief one side that I finally found out the cause and that I wasn't crazy, but then there was this huge question mark around how I'd go about dealing with it. And, and mate, that alone was a journey. That was... You're looking back, I was blessed because I was treating one of my patients in Brazil was the pioneer of functional medicine, orthomolecular medicine in Brazil. His name is Dr. Lei Hibero. And he invited me to go and study 
with him and a, a group of doctors that he was, you know, teaching his methods to. So over five years, I studied functional medicine over there. I studied and, and actually had my blood analyzed, live blood analysis, and all this amazing stuff that would you wouldn't find legal in a lot of other countries. Ozone therapy, um, I did my live blood and it was just out of control. When I saw what was in my blood, that there was just a prevalence of candida and there was parasites going crazy, I was like, I'm going to do anything I have to do to get rid of that. And so I dedicated to that. And, mate, it's a long story because you, you'll try one thing. And initially I tried chelation. And uh, in Western medicine, we've got something called DMPS and EDTA. DMPS is for mercury, more indicated. And, and it'd help, but the levels would go up again. You know, I'd do a surf trip to the Maldives and I'd eat tuna and they'd be off the charts again. So it's like I need to go deeper on this. And it was only when I discovered the importance of coffee enemas, believe it or not, that I successfully lowered my mercury and it's still low. And with that, you know, a lot of people when they're in dark times in their lives and they discover um, Christianity, for example, or other religions, or if we say a born-again Christian, understandably, well, that was me. That was me with health and gut health. To have a normal stool after 10 years, or actually I'd say all my whole life I thought a loose stool was normal, but the, the 10 years were out of control. To have a normal stool consistently was one of the most amazing things ever. And someone, if they've never been through that, they won't relate to how incredible that is. But that's really when I started to work on my gut health and develop some protocols, which I use with my clients today, that I know work. And that involved looking at the gut wall. It involved dealing with the, the mercury, okay, getting rid of that, and liver, obviously, Um killing the bad bacteria naturally, not with antibiotics, and boosting the good bacteria via a good probiotic. So that, that and a few more things, that's the basis of it. And, mate, after that, never look back. But I got – and this is interesting as well. I think a lot of people be able to relate to this, that I knew there was something going on and I knew that there was spiritual-emotional health and growth that was waiting for me to occur, but I knew that my physical health was impeding that. And so when I got that back, it was just amazing to, to feel and notice that that finally I was growing again, finally I was happier, I was focused, I was more empathetic, everything that goes with that. When you said about the coffee enemas, it reminds me, and it's been years since I dived into this, but the Gershon method, which um, yes, was again exactly. heralded as heresy, but yet makes so much sense. And I was actually having a conversation with, with someone the other day about chemotherapy and how that, as someone who was a medical professional, even though it was at the paramedic level, and you know, exercise physiology grad, so a, a somewhat of a grasp of modern medicine and you know, holistic medicine, to Agent Orange the entire body and then fingers crossed that it starts up again just never made sense to me. But there philosophy of you know the the juice cleanses you know the juices so you're still getting your nutrients and the coffee enema actually makes a lot more sense to me than you know just poisoning the entire body and you know rolling the dice to see if that person's going to survive or not mate that's a great point remember at the start i was talking about nutrients in toxins out the function yeah person therapy was a major influence in that and and I resisted it, okay, for maybe other men who have never done this before. 
I resisted it because it's like, oh, it's something you've got to put in your anus. You know, I've got to stick that up my bum, you know, like, and I regret it because I missed five or six years. I'd studied the Gerson therapy. I was familiar with the principles that made sense to me. Um, I'd looked at actually going to Mexico and going deeper on it, but it was only really when I saw that the DMPS and other things failed that I tried and I was like, why didn't I do this earlier? Because independently of looking at a major disease process or the fact that we've got to clean our liver out, look at what most people do. If they're next level health and they're thinking about nutrition and maybe supplementation, great. But in this modern world, unless we're looking at detox and removing what shouldn't be there, something's missing. It's getting nutrients in and it's pulling toxins out. And the Gerson therapy, you probably remember, when someone's late stage cancer, they're doing four enemas a day, you know, and they're doing their cold pressed veggie juices 13 times on the hour during the day. Yeah. Nutrients in, toxins out. And it's the one, the person I was talking to, um, she is a pathologist. So I, again, was curious, you know, when, when we were talking about the cancer thing and, you know, what she sees as far as some of the tumors, but they don't do, she was saying they don't really do autopsies on, you know, end stage cancer patients. And usually the family are like, no, we don't need to, you know, cut them open after that. But what does it look like inside the human body? from the chemo alone versus the tumor, you know? And so for me, you've got two people that are going to die. One, they try the holistic method and they pass, but they have, you know, somewhat of a quality of life until the very end. The other one, they're brutalized right from the beginning and they still pass. Now, you know, again, it's not black and white and it seems like immunotherapy and some of these other things are starting to come in now. Radiation therapy seems to be, targeted to a point where it's not as invasive anymore so so they're they're changing it but the goat you know the the, the knee-jerk response to when someone gets cancer is there's no real discussion on on nutrition exercise sleep you know time in nature community all the things that would boost the immune system and maybe shift towards homeostasis where there is a regression of a tumor but it's all about just as you said you know the the radiation and the chemo and then now they're in you know, a hospital getting hospital food, you know? So to me, I, I hands on my heart, if I did have that diagnosis and I obviously pray I never do, I know I would go the holistic route just simply because the other way doesn't make sense to me. If it's a tumor, you can cut it out and we're done. Just like your disectomy, beautiful, let's do it. But if you're going to fill my body or my child's body full of chemicals, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, all that suffering on, on the off chance that people survive. And I really feel like chemo kills more people than cancer does. I really do. It's interesting you say all that, mate, because in that short little phrase or th- series of phrases, I had multiple flashbacks to mum because mum's six years on now, but she was six years ago. I went back to Australia after living in South America 20 years, had no plans really to go and move back there, but felt that I wanted to change, gave mum the flu, she coughed up blood. We found out she had late stage cancer, uh, lung cancer from smoking. So she, I remember, like firstly, she was cared for by amazing oncologists and really caring people who were similar to the fire brigade, who focus on putting out the fire. No one will ever get healthier focusing on a disease. That's fact. The best you can have or hope for is that you will suppress the symptoms from the disease. 
but you'll not be healthy on the other side of it. So anyway, we're dealing with people like that. And I remember when um, mum got the diagnosis, it was the, the doctor said, look, you know, you're, how old are you? Um, you're 76, no, sorry, 75, 74. All right, you're stage 3B. It's crossed your body and it's gone to a tissue on the other side of your lungs, the lymphatic system. I think it's all about quality of life now. So you knew in her mind that she, she said, look, chemo is going to rattle that. So it's all about quality of life. And I was like going, eureka. Because only because I knew mum would not be one of the, the patients who'd resist it like others. So we were forced to very, very fast take her back to those doctors in South America that I'd learned functional medicine with. And we were forced to firstly boost her health with all the modalities that we could have, plus focus on the tumour, but in a natural way, because chemo was out anyway. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. I would hate to be the parent of a child with cancer and have to make that decision. I'd, I'd hate to do it. It must be one of the hardest decisions that you ever have to make, and even yourself, you know. But um, And I see this a lot with um, people, who, women who have breast cancer. You know, that it takes about 10 years, they say, for a, a tumour to grow to one centimetre. So there's often this urgency around removing the whole breast and doing chemo and radio. When that's done, oh, because you got cancer, but you're like, well, hang on, it's been there. It's a process. You know, you do have time to make decisions. And I feel sometimes when people are pressured to make a decision that's faster than what they'd want, then, you know, it can lead them down the wrong way. Um, so in mum's case, at least, beautiful. You know, we, I did, what we do over there, we did fecal transplant. We do IV uh, in the morning with vitamin C, magnesium, also glutathione, alpha lipoic acid and more. Then we take her to a, a um, hyperbaric chamber to augment the infusion of those into her body. We did the whole process with the gut, okay, versus colonics, ozone therapy. Mate, you'd have to see it. Like you have to see with your own eyes a doctor who looked after mum stick a syringe straight into her lung and inject it with ozone. And, and, and wonder why she didn't get a neurothorax. But there's all this stuff. The, this is really important to say, okay, what in that one month we had a 10% reduction in the tumour size, it was five centimetres. So didn't cure mum of cancer, but we did see the power of the body given all of the conditions to be able to work with it. And mum's course was that for six months it was stable. We were in South America two months, got her home, the doctors saw that it reduced a little bit in size, didn't didn't want to know, actually a couple of times ridiculed mum for talking about things like vitamin C and whatever, like laugh, literally, um, and, but not uncharitably, you know what I mean? So that's like, oh, poor thing, she's kidding herself. But six months I stayed by mum's side looking at everything, especially fasting in the morning, especially any foods that were going to increase glucose, knowing that cancer loves sugar, okay? Oxygenation, the ozone, we continue with all the rest. When I moved out, I stayed in Sydney, but I moved just to let mum be independent. She started drinking wine again and, and not really looking after a diet, doubled in size within a couple of months. So you mentioned immunotherapy, back to the miracle of modern medicine. 
you know, if it wasn't for immunotherapy, mum, mum wouldn't be alive today. Incredible. But what's immunotherapy do? It focuses on the immune system. And I, I've, I've got an M- the photo of the MRI on my phone. It's incredible. In three months, it went from eight centimetres to literally three millimetres. Incredible. But, and we think, well, hang on, if that's boosting the immune system, what can we do ourselves during our life to boost it naturally? And that's literally just giving our health what it needs and helping it avoid what it doesn't. 100%. Well, that, that rounds beautifully from the beginning of the conversation, so I'm glad we ended up talking about this. Um, yeah. One more area before I do the closing questions. You now work with the World Surf, Surf League. Excuse me. Um, I saw you interviewed Kelly Slater a while ago, um, someone I still want to get on the show. I mean, his longevity is just mind-blowing, so I'd love to get him on one day. But uh, talk to me about how you went from you know this journey. You're working in um, South America. Obviously, you were a surfer. You find yourself now in the functional medicine world. How did you now be, uh, enter the professional world of surfing? Sure. Um, yeah, that passion for surfing from day one and chiropractic. We had a, a surfing event in Sydney. And when I heard that one of the chiropractors was volunteering there, I think back in the day volunteering, maybe he's paid, but we volunteered to help him. And so that was 30 years ago. That's where the first contact with um, chiropractic, when, when I say chiropractic, what even though I was gra- a graduated chiropractor, to work with sports people, you can't just do chiropractic, okay? It's, you know, you need in your arsenal some physio techniques, some osteopathy, I do electroacupuncture. There's all sorts of stuff also you develop with time, PNF, stretching, all this sort of stuff. So when I was living in South America, I made contact with them, the tour when they were in Rio. And I started to work with them in Rio and then coincide with the time that professional surfing started to organise its medical department. And that was more than 20 years ago now. So I've worked for the last 20 years between one and three events a year, usually typically two or three, more recently just one. So it was COVID and all the rest. And it's just been beautiful to be able to travel with them, those guys and girls. And, you know, when a contest finishes early, and it's in a beautiful location with good waves. Most of the surfers leave and you stay and, and get good waves at the end of it. Um, you learn a lot about, you know, sports injuries, but you also learn a lot, a lot about working with athletes well before they're symptomatic and increase their function. That's a beautiful thing, actually. A lot who don't have that knowledge or have never thought about it, when they see that you can increase, for example, the range of motion of their shoulder in five minutes before a heat, from, can you imagine paddling all those years, how it caused the dominance here of the internal rotator? So if we open that up and they can see that, oh, my God, I've never got my arms, you know, close to my ears than, let's say, 15 degrees, and their hips and relating that to bottom turns and all the rest, then, wow, that's when you really see the power of what you do with athletes. Brilliant. Well, I would love to just throw some quick closing questions at you before oh, I sure. let you go. The first one, you mentioned your book, The Secret to a Healthy Spine. So before we get to other recommendations, where do people find that? They'll find it anywhere. I think it's on Amazon Booktopia, their local bookstore. Okay. So just put my name on their search and, and the title of that book and they'll find that, no problems. Brilliant. So that being said, is there a book or are there books written by other people that you'd love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah, we talked about um, Dr. Walker's book, Why We Sleep. Okay, 
for sure. I'm going to recommend Dr. McCullough's book, EMF. Okay, really, really important to understand the effect of EMFs at the moment, especially with the 5G being rolled out and what we can do to protect ourselves from that. Um, there's so many books, isn't there, that stand out over the Look, Dave Asprey's got a few books. The reason I like to recommend his books like Superhuman um, and there's another early one that I forget the name, even Fast This Way, he's got a great fasting book. So anyone, because fasting these days, there's a lot of different info around. If people are interested in intermittent fasting or longer ones, that's a really nice book to, to read and have an idea of what suits you. And the Superhuman one just goes over you know, like next level biohacks for brain, nootropics, sleep and all the rest. So that's a goodie as well. I, I love Ben Greenfield's podcast as well and Dave's, but Ben Greenfield's always in, interviewing really interesting people. Um, mate, that's what comes to mind right now. Oh, here we go. This is one that Jesse recommended, Concise Laws of Human Nature. Okay, brilliant. I haven't heard of that one. Oh, this is great. Robert Green. It's incredible. So it's a little bit away from health and what we're talking about, but totally related to mental health and understanding how humans operate. Beautiful. What about documentaries and films? Any of those that you love? Documentaries and films, yeah. Um, there was, I forget the names on Netflix. There's one on fasting. I've just got to remember the name of that. Look, there's that film on Netflix at the moment, the documentary series about the blue zones of the world. I forget what that's called. Yeah, I think, that's, I think it's called Blue Zones, actually. Yeah, Blue Zones, yeah. And that that actually comes, like if there's a book called Ikigai, Ikigai, a Japanese um, word that also talks about that. Really interesting, Ikigai. So they talk about the blue zones. Um Another one would be, oh, I love this this documentary. It was um, Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead. Yeah, he was an Aussie too, wasn't he? Yeah. Wow. Anyone wanting to start their health journey, I think sometimes it's easy to be inspired by people who've been where they are, you know, or worse, and, and listen to their journey, and that's really inspiring, that one. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, it was I think it was his wasn't there the trucker that had the great success the first time. Um he ended up putting a lot of the weight back on sadly. I don't know how he's doing now. I actually was was following on social media, but I think he was he was struggling again. But uh yeah, I mean the power of juicing, you know, I'm juicing. It's fasting and juicing. Juicing, sure. um, you know, if nothing else just as a cleanse, just a pause to give your your gut some time to recover. Again, it, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and look, go online and read up about or watch if you want anything about the Gerson therapy. You know, like the beautiful thing is now you can, you've got access to that. Um, Dr. McCullough's stuff, he, he, I put him at the forefront of everything. Like he's influenced me for 15 years and what he teaches is solid. He, he talks about the importance of vegetable oils and linoleic acid. A lot of us are unaware of just how dangerous um, vegetable oils are. I didn't know this till recently and listened to a podcast of his that seven-year half-life to remove vegetable oils from your body. That's crazy. So comparatively worse than a cigarette. Yeah, I had him on a while ago now, Dr. McCullough, and then I also had Jason Vale on a few years ago who's the, okay. the juice master, awesome. as they say. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Brilliant. Well, speaking of great people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? 
Well, Kelly, you mentioned before, straight away I thought I've got to speak with Kelly in the next couple of days and get him to have a chat with you. So I just think anyone like Kelly who's at the top of their game at the stage of life they are, you'll always learn from them, you know, like, and he's awesome to speak to with, with about health, you know. Um, anyone else that I know? Is this someone that I personally know? doesn't have to be, no. Mate, last year I worked with Matthew McConaughey here in Hawaii and I would have, we spoke about health, but I think someone like Matthew would be really good because he also englobes other aspects of being successful around health, you know, he gets, I'm sure, a lot of his health benefits from the joy his family gives him and the importance he places on that. So people who go outside of the biohacking stuff these days are really important as well, you know, like how important is love, how important is being a dad, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I think Matthew is just a happy guy smashing it, you know, living his life well. Yeah, yeah. I know he was doing podcasts for a bit last year when he released Greenlights, but... uh I missed that window. Yeah, okay, Vala. Yeah, true. Um, all right, well, then the last question before I make sure everyone knows where to find you and the website. What do you do to decompress? Decompress traditionally has been a challenge, I will admit. Okay, so recently, let's say the last six years, I give myself the first two hours of the day. So I wake up, I have my detox routine. I, I'm learning French and Italian online, which is great. It's easy, churn that out. And I'm actually learning, not learning, I'm writing my next book. It sounds like what decompress. It actually is, you know, when you're forced to be on the bathroom floor for half an hour in the morning, um, you can actually, you're inspired. So I'm, I'm dictating my next book, most of it, and it's, it's on longevity as well. So that combined with my red light panel, I use a PMEF every day for half an hour. So multitask that. And then I'll either jump into a surf or training. So obviously all the supplements and, and detox stuff around that, that are fast in the morning, that's important. Boom. After that, I jump into the day and decompressing at nighttime is probably more of a challenge for me because I work from home. So I've got my studio, go back to the house, what I do, you know, because you've got to be very careful that you disassociate totally from work and work has, I've allowed it to be too dominant or predominant over the years. So that's the biggie, having strategies around that. So I don't think, I think, you know, you can go, I, I love the cinema. So, you know, going, leaving the house is really important. Let's say that that wasn't the case. I've relied on things like brain tap, uh, you know, the Shatki mat, you know, the, the like the acupuncture mat i lie on that and i'll listen to oh baths how can i forget magnesium baths that's also red light okay blue light blocker glasses red lights in my home in the rooms that i'm in so i'm not being influenced by junky you know light that contains blue light and just magnesium baths with whatever else you want to put in there that's my decompression and when you work with people and physically and mentally, I think you have the responsibility of being your best. So definitely not alcohol, definitely, you know, no short, uh, what's the word, duration benefits, stuff that is long-lasting and conducive to good sleep. So you get a good sleep, happy days, away you go. Some sleep herbs around it, great. Love it. Fantastic. All right. Well, then you mentioned where people can find the book. You, you know, you have um, a different kind of, 
the spectrum of of services and and um, courses yeah. that you offer. So where can people find all those? Yes, yeah, so they're hosted on my site, jasongilbert.com.au. And the launch, actually, my Strong Back course is launched. If it's not this week, it's next week. And on that platform, there's a Strong Back for Surfers course. Quite soon also, um, I, I see the importance of helping people get through surgery, like recover after surgery, because there's very little that I learned that I was given actually when I had surgery. So I'm, I'm launching a course on what to do if you've had surgery or how to avoid it as well. But the most important is what to do after it. So they'll from now on in, that's what I'm dedicated to, just continual courses to more specific ones around detox and all that sort of stuff. That's on that platform, jasongilbert.com.au. Well, Jason, and I- yeah, well, people. I was going to say that people can find out about the retreats. That's that's actually something I like to say also that I often receive clients from long distances, and I've only got an hour sometimes with them. And you need so much more, so I'm introducing something that I'm not aware of. Maybe it exists somewhere in the world, and I'm not aware of it. But um, retreats every month dedicated to spinal or articular problems. So people come, I accommodate them at my place. They stay three days. We look at everything. They get a diagnosis, a plan of attack around it. I work on them, saunas, infrared, whole body vibration, anti-inflammatory stuff, lots of tuition, all the rest. So that's something interesting as well coming up. Fantastic. Well, I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. We've gone all over the place from teeth and mercury (laughs) through to you know, cancer and chemo and everything in between. But uh, I want to thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time today and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. James, my absolute pleasure. It's my passion, health in any form. And um, it's thank you very much for the invite. I was really excited to sit down for two hours and chat with you about all this sort of stuff. So my pleasure, totally.